0: You got a hot mic, Keenan. No, I'm good. Hey guys, welcome back to episode number six of Directive Podcast. My name is Kurt Schneider.
1: And I'm Keenan Wetzel.
0: And as always, today's episode is sponsored by Eightfold Creative. So on today's episode, we have a very special guest, John X. Carey. If you've been in a marketing class in the past five years, you have most likely seen the video that he shot for Dove, which had worldwide success. John has also done work for Apple, eBay, ton of other places, and he is currently working on a feature. And while Keenan finishes his drink, uh, let's go to the call. Hey, John. Uh, thanks so much for being on the podcast today.
2: Yeah, thanks guys. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of your work.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Well, We really appreciate it. We like to get right into it on this podcast. don't like to dilly-dally around too much. So why don't don't you just tell us how you got your start directing professionally?
2: Um, Yeah, totally. Well, I'm from the Midwest, like you guys. Um, Went to film school eight years ago when I was 21. Um, Moved to LA from Missouri uh, in like a broke down Ford Focus. Didn't have A dollar in my bank account actually less than a dollar in my bank account. True story. I had to wait about a month for my school loans to kick in. Um, and in the meantime, I had no money, so I'd like go to school functions with free food and load up on pizza and stuff. Uh, and it was super embarrassing, like people would pass comments, but I try to laugh it off. Uh, so it it was a bit of a struggle. I went to Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. Um, I was, you know, into that school because I really liked the sense of just the arts being there. They're like the one of the top. You know, car design schools in the world. Um, alumni like Michael Bay, Zack Snyder went there and stuff. So. Mm-hmm. so I was interested in kind of getting that visual polish that those guys had. Um, but go, before I went to film school, I went to college for three years in Missouri and studied um, English slit. But I think Art Center gave me a really great professional uh, background. It's an interesting school. A lot of the kids do commercials and then go straight to working with real clients while they're in school. Um, and some of the work you can't even tell that it's student work at all is super polished. Um, definitely not, an uh, art school. Like you might think of Cal arts or something. It's more of a, kind of like the suits, um, that really helped, I think launch me professionally directing.
1: So when did you transition from film school into directing commercials? Were you one of those people who, like you just mentioned, were directing commercials when you were in school or, uh, did you leave school and then uh, kind of get some gigs? How did that work out?
2: Yeah, definitely. So I started direct commercials as a reaction to art center. It's, um, like I said, it's the number one school in the world for commercial directing outside of this one school in Germany. Um, and I was a poor kid from Missouri who needed to make money and a Mm -hmm. $10,000 a day starting date rate, um, which is what you start off at in commercials as a director sounded really great. Um, (laughs) So yeah, it turned into like that would be my plan, uh, and I heard this quote by David Fincher, and he said directing commercials is like working out, it's like exercise, it's like the Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hour thing. Like you, you really need a lot of hours directing commercials and mm-hmm. in order to kind of branch out and do bigger projects. So I thought it's way it would work out. did, uh, and then in the future and make the jump into movies. So I started directing um, commercials for spec commercials in college is what you call them, which mm-hmm. is means speculation, uh, so fake commercials. And that kind of got me hooked up with this nonprofit that was interested in my work. And they said, oh, do you want to go to Africa and shoot uh, a film about AIDS orphans? And I said, yeah, sure. So I went and did that, they paid for it. I'm mean, gonna shot it for free, but it was a great thing for my reel. It won this award at Cannes which is a really great award if you can get it. It's called the uh, Young Director Award at Cannes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's part
2: of the Cannes Lions Advertising Festival. Um, I can't remember if I won or got second place. I think I got second place. It's funny with the French, like if if they don't feel like anybody deserves first, they just don't give a first place out. (laughs) They just give a second place. And I think I got second place, so I I felt I wasn't good enough.
0: Instead of an America where everyone's a winner, in France, no one's a winner. (laughs)
2: Right. No one's a winner. It's pretty funny. Um, But that was great. That got me, uh, you know, randomly I got a phone call from a production company in LA and they were like, "Hey, do you want to come in for a meeting? And I was like, yes. I was still a student and I was freaked out about getting a job. Um, So I started pitching on a project for uh, anti-drug while I was still a student my last semester. Had to duck out of graduation rehearsals early to go do a conference call for that. And I uh, wound up getting that job and luckily went straight from graduation into directing that. And that turned into the Harlem Elvis spot that's on my reel. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, that subsequently won an award that got me um, onto the next thing. And so I just kept building.
1: So so to just kind of move from there, like, you know, you went to the next production company, next production company, and, the, and did the bids just keep getting bigger as you kind of uh, moved your way up? Or was there one defining moment that kind of... Launched your commercial career? Yeah.
2: so Well, the first commercial I did was a Harlem Elvis thing, and that won thing called the uh, AICP Award mm-hmm. in New York, which is another good advertising uh, festival to win. It won for best um, spec commercial. Even though it was for a company, I kind of did a director's edit, and they considered it a spec commercial. So that won the AICP Award. And then that got me – you know, the, the production company I signed with as a student suddenly got really excited about me, and they started pitching me on other things. And I got an eBay campaign, uh, and I did the eBay spot, the motorcycle spot, mm-hmm. um, well, and then yeah. that got me the Dove thing. So that all kind of happened really quick. Yeah, just.
0: I I'm, I don't know if boom. you put this together, but I'm actually the one that posted on that video a couple of weeks ago asking if that was a real actor or if that was a real oh, person yeah. or if that was an actor. <laughs>
2: and it, so and it was yeah, hilarious. Yeah, never a comment.
0: Yeah, because I was showing it to my roommate last night, and he goes, you think that was a real guy or an actor? And I was like, how about you go to the video and scroll down? And he was just dying laughing because I had asked him and you <laughs> answered it. That's so funny.
2: That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, well, what's funny is that my, my commercial reps thought it was an actor, and then they would pitch me on commercials saying like, oh, check out how good John is with actors because they thought it was an actor. And then I got all these commercials, you know, that were like narrative with acting. And I was like, why am I getting this stuff? I don't have any, like, <laughs> stuff with actors on my reel, but apparently everybody loves this guy as an actor, so.
0: How how did, you know, finding that guy come about? I mean, did you have a large pool to choose from, and you're like, this guy was really compelling? Did they, like, send in, like, submissions of their stories? Or was that just pure luck? Because he's incredible. Yeah, most,
2: it, yeah, it's a crazy story with that guy. Most of the time with these insane stories, like, it's just – you get researchers on the job, and they – They just spend a lot of time on Google um, researching stories and they dig up stuff like this. That's also how it worked on Apple, like just researchers working for weeks. um, And I work with them Mm -hmm. and we find these these stories and then we kind of pitch them to the client and then they sign off and I write a treatment. Um, But so anyway, some researchers found this guy, found his story. And um, yeah, that's that's how that came about. So researching was really, really useful in this case.
0: Are those researchers with, within the ad agency?
2: Um, on eBay, they were on Apple. We hired our own independent researchers and they just worked with us at the production company. Hmm. And, um, uh, yeah, it, it is actually a really interesting way of, of going about real people casting. Um, cause sometimes you don't know, there's these things called real people casting directors, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure how they work uh, and I think sometimes researchers are a little bit better way to, to go about things.
0: Right.
1: So John, could you kind of take us through the process uh, when you're working through a production company that's someone that doesn't really know how it kind of, how, how a piece comes to you, like a commercial project comes, comes across your like desk.
2: Oh uh, yeah, of course. So it's funny when I was in film school, I didn't even know this and I went to like one of the top commercial directing schools um, I didn't realize that there's this thing called an ad agency and then a thing called a production company and they're two completely separate things and then there's a third thing called the client mm-hmm. but the, the client like eBay they reach out to the ad agency the ad agency says hey let's do a I don't know a doc about this motorcycle guy and then they have to triple bid it so they have to go to three different production companies
0: mm-hmm.
2: and um get three different directors on the phone, Uh, they do a first call with the director and they tell them about their project and the director says, okay, okay, cool, I'll go off and write a treatment. Uh, So these three different directors, they write three different treatments, submit them to the agency. Then usually there's a second follow-up call with all three directors uh, and then the agency presents their favorite to the client and normally the client just goes with whoever the agency wants to go with. so that's more or less how it works. It's this really crazy system. Um, with yeah, but, and it can be intense for directors because you know, you have the agency are all your boss and there's about ten of them that come to set, and then there's the client on top of that. And that's like the you know, the super bosses, uh, and there's you know, maybe three or four of them that come as well. So you kind of have like this whole video village on set of, you know, sometimes ten people that um, all have comments and feedback and you have to sort of listen to them and, and, uh, you know, incorporate that into what you're doing.
0: Right. Well, and you know, in, in that bidding process, you know, the, I know the first step is obviously you put together a treatment. Um, what, what, when you get, when you get a project, project comes into your lap, what is, what's like the first thing that you do in regards to your treatment? Are you looking to your tone and feel or how, how do you start putting things together? Yeah, so
2: this is something I learned the hard way, uh, but the treatment, if you're doing things right, I think it's just a redundant document because how it works is, you know, you have that first call with the agency, um, and you you got to think that the agency is doing three of these calls, and that's three hours talking to directors, and then they get three different treatments, and each treatment's like 20 pages long, so that's 60 pages of stuff that they have to read, and so I think, I don't know, maybe it's naive to think that the agency actually has time to read all of that stuff in detail in the treatment and really think about it and, you know, process it and, you know, try to picture your vision. I think you have to nail that first call and basically have everything you want to do uh, written down. And on that first call, I think a lot mm-hmm. of doctors think, Oh, I'm just supposed to listen to the agency and hear what they have to say. But I think it's the other way around. I think you need to do all the talking and tell them exactly what your plan is in detail for every single thing. Because I think that first call, that's where they make their decisions. And, um, it's less about saying like, "Oh, John's a nice guy and he's a good listener." It's, it's about saying like, "Oh, okay, I really like all his ideas. I remember all that from the first call. Um, we're going to go with this guy." Uh,
0: so really, so, being prepared—that like, took me a while to learn. So really, being prepared for that first call, you think is kind of the most important thing.
2: Yeah, when I started doing that, I started winning a lot more jobs. Um, you just got to pitch the agency and everything on that first call. Um, yeah. I think it's a good it's a good method.
1: So what's your collaboration? You've now won the project. What's your collaboration like? You kind of alluded to it um, on set. How do you deal with creatives and, and and going back? Are you going back to Video Village a bunch and getting uh, getting thoughts and opinions and, and when they're watching playback or how's your how's your relationship with the creatives on set?
2: Yeah, it's um it's all about having a really good producer in an A D to funnel the comments to you mm-hmm. so that hopefully you never really have to get back to it the Video Village, Um, I'll go back there maybe a couple times to talk to them if it's a really important thing. Um, Most of the time I get lucky because the type of projects I do, the creatives are really uh, standoffish mostly and and, uh, respectful and they just kind of let me do my own thing. Um, So that relationship has been pretty good. I I try to have everything pretty prepared in advance as well so that they're not being surprised by stuff and they kind of know what the game plan is. I try to talk to them first thing every morning so that they, you know, have a good, uh, you know, understanding, try to give them shot lists and uh the list of questions that I'm going to be asking people in the interviews and stuff like that. Um, just so that, yeah, they feel taken care of. Um, and then, yeah, if they have a comment. It's just about if you think you can fit that in without kind of breaking the story or not. Um, you know, and it, sometimes I'll just say, well, no, I really don't think that'll work. Uh, and normally they're like, okay. And then we, we won't do that. But most of the time they just have comments that do make things better. Um, I remember on Apple, I think they only really had one comment, which is like, I, I was wanted to shoot this kid walking down a hallway at a school and I wanted him to be alone. And they were like, oh, but what if you had a bunch of people in the hallway and then he'd seem even more lonely because he'd just stand out. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. So
0: mm-hmm. there's a
2: bunch of people there and he, he seems even more lonely with a bunch of people around him right. and he's kind of ignored. Um, and that was literally the only comment I remember them giving me on that <laughs> entire job. So, uh, it's I don't know, and it made things better. Yeah.
0: That's a good, that's yeah, a good client. Time, right I there. don't even
2: see them. I'm sorry. What'd you say?
0: I just said that's a good client right there.
2: Yeah, definitely. But you know, it's funny. It's the rule of thumb is, uh, if the creative is bad, then usually the, the creative are like <laughs> very micromanagey and, mm-hmm. and, and like, we're not quite on the same, like we don't know, we, you know, we're not on the same channel with each other, but, uh. I don't really do those jobs. I I try to do the jobs with the, with the nice creative and usually those creatives are always awesome. Right.
0: Um, you know, so I guess just just start talking about some of your spots. You know, I've kind of noticed a lot of, a lot of, uh, your work. That's like some of my favorites are, you know, very organic in nature. You know, they kind of have, um, almost that documentary type feel to them. Um, Mm -hmm. are they, are those, you know, obviously there's a lot of playing that goes into those to, to give it that documentary slice of life feel. How, how do you do that? Like plan it out to a certain extent, but then still deliver it. So like effortlessly.
2: Yeah. Well, thank, thank you for the nice comment. Um, I think the shoots are probably more organic than they even appear. I think Hmm. I, I stylize things a lot in the edit to make them more cinematic. Uh, but, uh, yeah, in terms of how we plan things out, um, I try to, try to get to know the people ahead of time. Um, like on, on eBay, I, I flew up there just myself. He, he lived in Northern California, and I live in L.A. So I flew up there, um, met him and his wife. He kind of drove me around, and we just talked. And uh, he, he just kind of got to know me. I remember thinking, like, man, this guy's kind of like a cowboy, and his motorcycle's kind of like his horse, and I was like, what if we shot him in a field, and I don't know, like, it just sort of, like, comes out like that,
0: Mm -hmm. trying to
2: get to the essence of what makes him special. Um, I really, I think, like, sometimes you can work with a great actor, but you have to just pay attention to what their strongest attributes are as a human, and uh, for him, it was like this kind of gruff cowboy guy, and he's got these greasy hands, and uh, I just wanted to see all that. Um, so we, you know, put them out in this field and then when we shoot, it's really, really intimate. I heard that Gus Van Sant doesn't, uh, use a monitor. He just looks at people. Hmm. He stands right next to them and and just looks at them and it makes it more human. Like I remember Robin Williams said, he looks at at you with these really human eyes and it just kind of brings more humanity to the whole process. So I try to get all the crew out of there. Like the last thing you want is the energy of like a grip eating an apple (laughs) right off camera while somebody's pouring their their heart out so the ad is it's not intense but he just you know he clears everybody out like a close that they don't even know half the time that video village is there like we keep video village in a van or we keep it hidden so they have no idea that they're being watched on monitors somewhere um and then it's yeah it's just usually me and the dp and we shoot and we try to have like a yeah a thoughtful conversation with somebody um and and keep it as real as possible and never put words in people's mouths never ask them to to say things again, Um, it's so annoying because people are always saying, John, you need to have them repeat your question back to you in their answer. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. Like it's going to ruin the whole, it's going to make things stilted and stiff. Um, Mm -hmm. So I really try to like just get, get to their, get to their center um, and put their story up on screen. So that's, that's kind of the process. And it it seems to work to get really intimate stuff um, in a documentary setting.
1: So, John, tell me a little bit about um, the Dove Project. That's a project that obviously went fairly viral and everything like that. How did that come about, and what was your creative uh, influence on that project? Were you you know, helping to cre- create the kind of a core concept of that, or um, was it kind of pretty well-developed when it came to you? Yeah, it's
2: interesting. That came as a... Um think it was originally a print campaign that they came up with you know to have the two sketches and they had a cool idea of getting an fbi sketch artist to sketch two different women and then compare them the woman's version and a stranger's version and then they came up with that great tagline you're more beautiful than you think but um it was originally i think yeah i can't a a print campaign i think maybe they wanted to like try getting a bunch of these sketches made and maybe do like a gallery with them and uh they came to me and they were like, "Yeah, do you want to like kind of film this process of making these sketches?" And I said, "Well, yeah, but let's make this whole film out of it. Let's show mm-hmm. the women like what the sketches look like." And I think they wanted to do it on the street or something. And I was like, "Well, let's do it all on this loft where we can control the lighting." And um, so yeah, it turned into this whole film. Uh, yeah, it was great. I, I was really young when I shot; I was like 24. And then the same week, my grandmother passed away, and she kind of raised me. So I was in a really emotional place. And I think sometimes when I make films. Uh, that turn out the best. You're having some kind of catharsis while you're making the film, and I think Mm -hmm. that happened on that for me. For for Dove, it was just this idea of uh, letting go of grief, of kind of like these women had a lot of self-hate that they'd held in for years, and then I was into the idea of trying to capture them, letting it go on camera. Uh, And then on a practical level, I was always like, man, why doesn't somebody make like a really artfully done reality show? Like take the cheesy reveals and stuff they do on reality shows, but just do it in like... An elevated, artful, classy way. Um, so it was a little bit of that, trying that as well. Um, and then I was also into this idea of uh, Aristotle's anagnorisis. Uh, you might you might know this if you listen to John August. They just did a thing about it. But um, you know, it's this idea of the character realizing something in the third act, like Titus uh, yeah. Willis in *The Sixth Sense* realizing he's dead. And so I wanted to try to do that in real life. Just capture this idea of uh, women realizing something, having this realization on camera that kind of reverses everything. That you expect up until that point. So um, it was really fun. That was a super small shoot. It was me, the camera guy, a producer. Uh, We didn't even have an art director. Like, I bought all the props at IKEA myself in a van and brought them there. And uh, I put up the curtain and uh, would refill the water glass in between takes. And it was super thin. And then I, 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 you know, like, edited the whole thing uh, with an editor kind of just side by side. Uh, both on two different Final Cut Pro machines. Um, so it was, it was really great to be so hands-on and to feel like I was really making a film that reflected who who I was as a director kind of for the first time. And then to have it take off was a great endorsement for my career. I think I had like a five-year plan before that, and then it sort of happened in one night. Um, and so that was that was really hard to deal with as well. I think the success of that was hard to, to come back from and get out of the shadow of. Um, but I think I've finally starting to get out of the shadow of it. Um, kind yeah. of understand why there's so many one hit wonders, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it definitely was an amazing piece. I, I can't tell you how many of my, uh, marketing classes in college had us watch that spot and uh, all the girls oh, were wow. crying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, no, it was, wow. I seriously, I watched it in multiple classes. It was pretty funny. Um,
2: yeah, my niece texted me from class the other day. There was like a photo of it in her textbook. I can't believe it.
0: Wow. Damn, that must be cool.
1: So is there a lot of... Yeah, it's insane. So after that piece, is there a lot of people that want to recreate that? There are a lot of like, like people coming to you with like, hey, let's do something like this. How do you, like you kind of alluded to it again. Uh, how do you get out of that kind of shadow of now making this kind of thing that you might know that's going to be harder or not even want to recreate? Yeah,
2: well, it's really funny. Um, I think I made the mistake maybe for the first year of trying to recreate it. Um, I was like, "Well, I use this DP, and I did it this way, and we shot it mm. this way, we use this music and this composer." And I, I thought like, "Oh, I can do this again." I was really cocky, and we tried to do it huh. again on a few different projects, and it didn't work. It all flat, like it was embarrassing. Like it didn't even resemble those. And I thought, "Oh my God!" Like there, you can't just. There's no process. Yeah. Every film is like your first film. There's no process. Uh, And then I read this book called Creativity, Inc. by Ed Catmull, who is the founder of Pixar. And it's a fantastic book because he talks about how Toy Story was such a huge hit and, like, how could they come back and keep – and they kept going. They kept making great film after great film after great film. And that was his main message is that you just can't use the process. He says process – if you just try to go with your process, it's like picking up a briefcase by the handle, but you don't realize the handle is not attached and you just run off and you don't even have the briefcase with you. And I think that's really how it how it works. Uh, so once I realized that, you just can't use that same process again, you can't make that film again, uh, I think things started getting much better for me. So that was the big lesson there. Um, and I really did get thrown into the deep end of the pool because suddenly I got signed at a big production company tool as well off of that film. And they're like one of the top 20 kind of companies. And I was a little guy and it was really um, – Daunting, trying to figure out how to do everything, and suddenly you're pitching on super ball spots. You know, you went from doing like no budget things for um, Google or whatever, and then you're doing pitching on a super Bowl spots.
0: And so it's really,
2: it was a crazy learning curve, and I'm thankful it's over now.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> I'm thankful
0: you made you made it out. Um, well, yeah. so let's talk a little about the the Dylan piece for Apple. That was that was another great one that just really, you know, tugged at the heartstrings. Oh, thanks. Yeah,
2: he, he was a really special kid. Um, that I don't know how it came to the production company, but I pitched really, really hard on it. I am kind of an Apple fanboy. But I just mm-hmm. talked about how like I was a fourteen year old kid that got a Mac and it like opened up my whole future for me and gave me a gave me a life. And I thought that kind of did the same thing for Dylan. Like mm-hmm. and so that was my whole pitch. I was like, We gotta find a young, like, adolescent that's got a Mac and it's like giving them a the future. And that's what, you know, that story was, this autistic kid who can't speak, who sort of cobbled together a way to speak through his iPad. Um, I just really connected with that story. And again, it was kind of a catharsis moment when I was making that film, because I was like, wow, I remember being this the stage, I remember all these
1: feelings, and
2: I remember kind of the day it ended, and the, the joy that brought me. So I, I just tried to put all that into the, into the film. And it's so funny, because I direct so much stuff, and I don't really get emotionally super into it, but when when I do, like I think that stuff turns out the best, and that, it definitely happened on the Apple thing. So I was so thankful that they liked it and uh, released it because they shoot a lot of stuff, that they don't they don't release. Uh, so I was really scared that that would happen to this one, but it didn't.
1: Well, it sounds like two of the more well-known pieces you you've done dove and and apple you had a kind of a personal connection to both those and you can kind of you kind of yeah. you kind of see that tone throughout I, I know it's not possible to do it on every project but um, right definitely something interesting kind of on a a more technical level what's your relationship with your with your dp like are you, are you a very hands-on director when it comes to the camera are you operating at all are you you know shot cheating everything or are you again more like the gus van zant like you you alluded to earlier again looking him in the you know looking the actor in the face and worrying about just the the talent
2: yeah definitely um i like dps that kind of put the camera on an easy rig and they don't stop shooting. They're just running around shooting everything. And I've learned that I don't like to work with the more established DPs because they don't want to do that. They want to get the dolly out and just sit on the dolly. Mm. And um, I can't stand that. I don't like the dolly. I don't like any of that stuff. I like to be handheld and just run around and get a lot of footage. And I don't like to stop the real moment that's happening. Um, like there's nothing more frustrating when you're having an emotional interview and the sound guy says, oh, stop playing, stop like that just drives me insane um because i i feel like i really have to preserve a real moment on set and sometimes i get frustrated with the mechanics of shooting union shoots because the crew is like well we gotta light this we gotta do this the right way i gotta sleep this and uh, <laughs> i think i drive probably people pretty crazy because i i use this term fifty fifty, which means just start rolling and like because the actor, the talent will be doing something and you say this term 50 50 it means secretly start recording this person because they're doing something interesting and if you say action they're going to freeze up and stop doing it yeah so they do that all the time and the crew gets so oh, mad because everybody has to run out and uh so anyway but i like doing things that way i really like keeping the crew small i don't think you need a lot of people so yeah it took me a while to figure out um of course when i got done i started working with all the biggest dps i could i could get all the big movie guys and uh it was fun but and it would work great if you're doing a movie but For the kind of projects I do, I really like the younger guys, the young guys that are always shooting. Um, but yeah, I like to shoot with the Alexa. Uh, we shoot with super speed lenses a lot. Um, you know, uh, but like I said, it's, it's mostly easy rig. Lately I've gotten more into doing stylistic stuff, uh, with drones and cranes and
0: Mm -hmm.
2: water housing, even shot a VR thing, but, um, yeah, it was okay. Do you guys, what do you think of VR? Have you talked to anybody that does that?
1: Yeah, I I've I've heard people tell me that you ha- as a young director you have to know how to do it. You have to know how to do it. So, I think yeah. Ev- I think it's it goes back to the thing everyone wants to uh say there's one there's one solution, you know. You know this and you'll get yeah. work. So, I haven't personally shot anything. I like I, I mentioned earlier to you, I've shot something now on the iPhone. A lot of people are wanting to do that to make it s- super organic stuff. Um so, I think I think that's agencies trying to figure out the next thing. How was your VR shoot? Was it, int- was, it was it a whole good. different thing? Yeah, it was
2: interesting. It's um, it's really difficult because you can't really monitor or, or watch what you're doing. Maybe there's a way now, but a couple of months ago there wasn't. It's, it's developing so fast. They're, they're building so many rigs and cameras. But, okay. um, yeah, it's really difficult because you don't know, like, how close somebody should walk to the camera because you can't see it while it's, it's doing it. You know, you mm-hmm. just have to shoot it, and then they stitch it together later. But I think now there's ways to watch it as – as you're shooting it so it's really hard for me to block the action and compose the shots and stuff Mm. when you're just like uh yeah put it there I guess that works (laughs) um and I realized I learned that you can shoot different quadrants like you don't have to shoot all 360 degrees at once you can shoot like you know a quarter of it at a time and then stitch it together and sort of control the timing a little bit better um but I don't know like I think it's interesting for products and maybe even for documentary work, if you mm-hmm. you know pop one down in like a refugee camp in Jordan and look around, uh, that's really interesting. But I think for narrative storytelling, it kind of uh, I, I think it negates the storytelling process. because the storytelling process is a narrator tells you a story, it's like sit next to the campfire, let me tell you a story. And when you're picking what to look at, you're suddenly becoming involved in narrating the story to yourself. And I, I don't think that's how stories should work. No. Um, that's so interesting.
1: It seems like those books where you read a book and you turn to page, yeah, choose your own adventure. Yeah, choose your own adventure right. where that's not traditional storytelling all the way back to Aristotle like you mentioned earlier. So I think narrative right. film is going to stay stay like that. There's going to be some industries that VR blows up. I, mean, I think it's
0: just I think it's a tool like anything. I think it I think it's going to have a similar effect as like what 3D has, you know, like everyone's trying to shoot everything in 3D and adapt things for 3D, but it's already it's already started to fizzle out and people are like yeah i don't i don't even want to see that in 3d so right it's like a novelty yeah exactly and i'm I'm sure it'll have its time and it'll probably open up a lot of new doors um but yeah i don't think it's i don't think it's gonna come steamrolling through everything that's existing now in storytelling by any means
1: well there's a movie it was a movie hardcore henry that was that first person uh, movie right. and it didn't do very, it didn't do very well. I
0: heard it made a lot of people sick actually. Yeah. So, I mean, that's really? not, that's that not true? VR, huh.
1: so that's not VR, but yeah. like it's, it, it's kind of along the same line lines of like you're in the story. So, um, definitely something, uh, interesting kind of switching, huh. switching it's... gears, uh, over to, um, you know, kind of, we've now talked about commercial and then we're just kind of touching on narrative. Um, Mm-hmm. What do you what do you find differently about handling actors in in narrative, uh, versus commercial? And it sounds like your your difference is going to be less than some other people because you do these very emotional stories. Um, but are you mm-hmm. are, are you line reading to people? Are you telling them pick up this pencil? You know, like something that you wouldn't necessarily do in in, in narrative.
2: Uh, yeah. So what, yeah. So it's been fun working with actors. Um, I've kind of learned that you can't have an actor do something that you can't have them play a character that they naturally are are not that if they're not that person. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really just try to cast people that are the character in real life. And so that there's a very short leap for them to create that character. And so then it becomes more like a documentary mode of working. Um, I do really long takes with actors, like 10, 15 minute takes and we just do the lines again and again and again. We don't stop. um, And I feel like, it starts to beat the acting out of them a little bit. And towards Mm -hmm. the end, they're just saying it as as who they really are. And I think that kind of helps. I guess David Fincher does a similar thing, Um, but uh, I I do a lot of that. And then uh, with acting, I I got this great advice from a director. He says, he says, always get one Uh, Baker Smith. He's a, he's a great commercial director at hardness, but he said, always get one where you have them not do anything like absolutely nothing. And they just say the line really simple. And he's like, you'll be surprised how often that's the take that you use. And it's really true. Um, always get just one, like if they're supposed to be crying or mad or whatever, like I'll say, okay, now just say it like, like without doing anything. And uh, sometimes that's the most effective thing. So uh, there's a lot of different tricks. Um, I haven't found it too hard. I know a lot of documentary directors have a really hard time going into the narrative, but um, I, I, I don't know. I think it's kind of easy for me.
0: And, I'm excited and to do more. Do you do you have a preference between commercial and narrative directing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always wanted to be a narrative director, but I saw that some of the directors with the best faith, like Nolan, started in documentaries. And so I wanted to start in documentaries and learn more about human behavior and about life, because uh, I think as a dramatist, all you're doing is recreating behavior. So. I wanted to be able to recreate behavior in a really accurate way. Also, I felt like I hadn't lived enough to tell my own stories. So shooting in Africa, shooting in Guatemala, shooting in uh, India, shooting in, you know, the fellas in Brazil, all that stuff really, I think, showed me a lot of different aspects of life and different ranges of humanity. And so I think now I feel very ready to, to go into narrative and I'm excited about it.
1: So, so now kind of transitioning the narrative stuff, are there any... Uh, projects you're working on currently that you can talk about? Are you, are you working on some, some narrative features? Is that kind of the end goal? Absolutely.
2: So I got repped by a management company, Circle of Confusion, about three years ago, and we started working on a project, a really exciting uh, narrative project. And um, I wrote a script, and I shot a short proof of concept film that we just locked two days ago. And uh, I think I was telling you guys I was color correcting. Uh, we're color correcting it, doing the effects, and then we're going to try to sell that project in about six weeks' time when it's all finished. And um, really excited about it. I think it's going to be a really special. It's kind of like, you know, like Stranger Things. Those guys are super into the '80s, mm-hmm. and they're like, in, you know, and have like this, encycl- ency- this encyclopedic knowledge of '80s movies. I'm sort of like that, but with the '90s. I love like the big human spirit blockbusters of the '90s, like Goodwill Hunting and uh you know force gump and castaway and braveheart and all these kind of things so it's sort of like more in that realm uh like a throwback to those kind of movies mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it see see how it does
0: how how long is it
2: it's uh the script it's the script's like 110 pages oh, okay um but then the- we shot this proof of concept that's five minutes um and then, yeah. Is it kind of so just a? Of
1: concept is, is, it, is it kind of like a slice of the film, or is it the start, opening of the film, or or what did you kind of decide that route?
2: It's really bizarre, actually, because yeah, a, a lot of the proof of concepts are like, oh, we'll, we'll make the first scene, or we'll shoot the setup, or we'll shoot like a fake trailer. Yeah. And I was like, well, what if we shot like a film that took place after the script? And so there's all these questions. You're like, oh my god, like, why is this guy here, and what is this person doing? And and so it's like there's all this mystery and all these questions about it. And so hopefully this proof of concept works in the sense that people watch it and say, wow, I really want to figure out like what the backstory to this proof of concept is. Let me read the script. So it takes place uh, a couple years after the script, which is a weird concept, but hmm. we'll see we'll see what happens.
1: So so would you would you say this film's more uh, like a like an adult uh, an adult drama or something like that? Kind of like in the ma- in the way it's
2: a, uh, I guess you would describe it as an existential sci-fi. Oh,
1: okay. Film, cool. Kind of in
2: the realm of lost or, uh, yeah. Something like that. Like the leftovers.
1: Well, we like, well in that world. like all those things. So yeah. we're, we're, we're a fan. If uh, we can pull some money together, we'll oh, find cool. it.
2: cool. <laughs> so are you guys working on uh, projects as well? Narrative stuff.
0: I was writing stuff on the side. Um, it's, I guess the one thing that's hard for me at least is just like, you know, it's, there's so many different routes where you can put your energy and attention. Um, it's just, it's hard to kind of know where do I go? You know, am I better off putting putting my time into, um, into spec work or is it working on, you know, short films, working on features, I just, I don't know. I don't know if you have any advice for that, but that's definitely something that I kind of find myself dealing with. There's just so many routes you can go. It's like, how do you kind of narrow that down?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I should say that my whole career, I think, got launched, uh, not just on winning those awards, but on getting staff picked on Vimeo. Mm -hmm. Uh, I owe Vimeo everything. And I think I'm really lucky because I was in college when the 5D came out, and I was like one of the first people to sign up on Vimeo. I feel like I just hit the wave at the right time. I don't know if Vimeo can still kind of make your whole career, but I think I got staff picked, at I forget how many times, but that really, really helped. Um, and I got so many jobs as well because when, you know, the first year was a little bit slow commercial-wise. And so getting some freelance jobs also Vimeo Fimeo mm-hmm. was, was really helpful. Um, my PA, I worked with this PA in 2013, and now he's a big director. <laughs> he just did a spot for the Olympics. And what took him off was getting staff uh, picked as well I uh, think he was my PA just three years ago so it's a, it's a great method I think is yeah. there
0: any is there any like trick to that would you say because I've heard different things that it's it doesn't come about organically that often
2: uh, uh, well I know you have to you go to the staff pick page and you post like a link to your film uh, and then they check it out I guess they have somebody mm-hmm. that goes through and reviews all those
1: yeah they have like, shout-out box
2: stuff. But, um, and I think that's how you get on their radar, but, uh, no, I mean, you got to sort of be like, well, I got to just make this really great piece of content Mm -hmm. for free and not have any logos or brand, and just give it away as a present to the audience, Mm -hmm. um, and pack it full of useful information. Um, and like, I think my first one was the Africa thing. And then the second one was the... Uh, teacher thing. With the teacher thing, I was like, I just want to put a bunch of really great life advice in this from this amazing woman, this amazing teacher, and maybe people will share it because that life advice, life advice will inspire people or help them, and uh, maybe it will be the kind of thing people want to share on Facebook with their friends. And um, I think that kind of happened a little bit. I mean, it didn't go super viral, but um, just packing it full of useful information uh, was kind of my <laughs> strategy, and then trying to, you know trying to check the the Vimeo boxes of making it beautifully shot, you know, using DSLRs in a nice way, Um, you know, trying to make it uh, not, you know, using the score from Titanic on it, but using something kind (laughs) of like indie and more interesting uh, just, you know, to fit all their brand sensibilities. I knew I had to play along those rules. Um, But yeah, I didn't know anybody there or anything like that. I just
1: put it in a shout out box. Just
0: good content. Hopefully, Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, they thought so. So, but yeah. So, we, John, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, thanks for talking to us. It was definitely informative for us, and I'm sure it's going to be for the, the, you know people listening. And well,
0: this yeah. one one last question, just because we always end it on this. Sure. Um, any advice that you would that you would have loved to have had right when you were starting out? Something you know now that you you didn't know back then when you were getting started?
2: Yeah, I think finding your style is almost 80% of becoming a success as a director. I, I started trying to make comedy, believe it or not, really weird, and it just wasn't working. And I said, you know what, I'm gonna try making this doc thing that's emotional. And then suddenly that blew up and that took me off. And thank God I made that, that choice and found my style. I think a lot of people don't work hard enough on finding their style. So if you can do that, uh, you'll be good. Because that really is, that's a huge part of it.
1: So there's John X. Carey, a big time director that we're definitely gonna keep an eye on moving forward. He's gonna do some big things. Anyway, we have a website now, directthepodcast.com. you can go and check that out. And we're gonna post links to the show as well as uh, links to the work that guys that we have on. So um, check it out. Until next time, I'm Keena Wetzel. And I'm Kurt Schneider. Thanks for listening.
0: We'll see you guys next time with a new director and some new questions.